women can also kind of embody what we see in a lot of male identifying people, which is this idea of not committing right away, you know, but really checking out the field and having fun in the process and not feeling rushed, you know, to like select someone and to be committed before it feels like we've done the proper discernment about whether this is the right uh, fit for us, you know, and, and not just committing to one. So I feel like Lord Krishna then became an interesting teacher of the power of rejuvenation because Krishna himself is youthful, is playful, is obviously profoundly wise and also a warrior but dancing on the crocodiles as he's engaging in his battles and like what a amazing interesting deity right like what an interesting idea that when we have mastered the power of transcendence we can just be like krishna like a cute flute playing fun loving wise powerful warrior teacher uh being right and like i really have connected with that energy of the divine masculine to even understand durga as mahagori and what rejuvenation actually means and what having a new beginning actually means welcome to crazy wisdom i'm your host luke antrop Crazy Wisdom is our show about the wild, the unexpected and interesting places we find ourselves in during our quest to live a life of deeper meaning and deeper truth. My hope is with each conversation and each story, you discover a new part of yourself on your journey towards making the most out of this one wild and precious life. This is a Soulfire production. I am thrilled to welcome on this week's show, Ananta Ripa Ajmira, Ananta is a spiritual teacher and an author. Welcome to the show, Ananta. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to have you. You know, part of the concept of our Crazy Wisdom Show is it's partly a storytelling podcast. And as part of that, we often have told stories about our own personal experiences and all the wild places we find ourselves in in kind of living a life of deeper purpose and deeper truth, right? And for this week's show, we want to go a little different direction. I certainly want to hear about your own personal stories. and But you also have just authored a really remarkable book, The Way of the Goddess. And it is chock full of stories about Vedic goddesses. And I thought, you know, as a way of introducing you to our crazy wisdom community, we might hear some of these really rich stories and how you've brought them alive. How does that sound? That sounds great. Thank you. Before we dive into these really rich stories, I thought maybe, you know, it'd be wonderful just to hear a little bit about how this book and your own kind of immersion in these tales, how did that come about for you? This book really came out of a journey that I took to reconnect with my own roots. I was a college student at NYU and I had grown up going to India a lot while growing up in Ohio. And then through my teenage years, we didn't go to India as a family. Then when I got to college, I got really interested to go and visit to learn about all the work that was being done for women's empowerment, girls' education, and social entrepreneurship. When I was there, I remember meeting this young girl named Lakshmi at the Gandhi Ashram. And she had gone through a lot of abuse, and yet... She was named after the most widely worshipped Hindu goddess of wealth. And that 
contrast just really struck me very deeply that in India, we worship goddesses, and yet we don't connect that goddess with the women and girls who are named after them. And we don't connect with that goddess within, but what if we could? And that really sent me onto a quest to find out what is the goddess? What does the divine feminine really stand for? What does it mean? And how can I connect with it as a source of personal empowerment? Mm. What I appreciate about your relationship to, you know, the goddesses and, and it's something I share in my own path, which is like, there's a way in which we can learn so much about ourselves through studying the world wisdom traditions and the gods and goddesses and the characters of these rich ancient texts, right? But so often uh, the way that a lot of people relate to them is as these external kind of forces and stories outside of ourselves. And what you've done, I, I, what I love about your book and in, in my own practices, it's actually like bringing it into our own body, mind, bringing it into our own being. And what's it like to really embody these various deities and energies? So mad respect for how you've really taken to these in a deep way and in an embodied way. Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. I've also felt that way very often that we feel that the deities or the goddesses are external entities. And yet what we learn in the Vedanta philosophy is that there are actually three stages of what is called bhakti or devotion. And in the first stage of devotion to the divine, we feel that God is far away and we have to travel to get to God in a temple, a church, a mosque, a synagogue, whatever place of worship we may be affiliated with. Then in the second stage of devotion, we feel God is near. We have glimpses of the divine, even in our everyday experiences, we feel that we don't have to go anywhere necessarily to connect with that divinity because it's ever present in the universe, in the sunrise, in the sunset, in the flowers, in the birds, and all of nature. And in the third stage of devotion, we find that, oh, wow, this god, this goddess that I see in the shrines, in nature, that sometimes had felt far away, sometimes felt nearby is actually within me. And I can actually uncover that through my own dedication and my own quest and my own power of intention. And I feel that that's such an important facet of the spiritual journey to recognize that we have all of this divinity that we're seeking outside of us, within us, but we need a map. We need a roadmap to reconnect with that innate divinity. And that's actually what the Navratri journey has given me and what it gives all of us when we're able to really connect with this nine night goddess festival as actually being a nine step spiritual path that leads us step by step to be able to heal and balance each of our chakras and ultimately to dispel all of our illusions and to feel all of our emotions and then transcend everything and ultimately become less and less full of desires and thereby more and more connected with the divine that is our true nature. Yeah. 
Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, and so the the map that you're pointing to here is it, it aligns with the nine chakras starting at the base of the body, going up the center column, and there are a goddess associated with each of these chakras, right? And so, yeah, yeah. In your book, this this is why I just found this so kind of easy to understand and kind of relate to, regardless, by the way, of what gender or sex we're born into, right? Like we all exactly. have this, yeah. you know. As somebody, as a man, <laughs> I found this to be actually a really interesting way to to feel into my internal, you know, kind of feminine aspects in in a really interesting way, in a way that I hadn't quite come across yet thus far. And so, starting at the base of the body with the first chakra, there's a goddess associated with that, and we go up all nine chakras. I'm just wondering, you know, like I said, we're a storytelling. Uh, experience here. And I'm wondering if you have a favorite goddess or one that you feel is particularly <laughs> poignant to start with that we'd, we'd love to hear just a few of these really rich stories about these goddesses and how you bring them alive in your own life. Yeah, it's always such a tough question to be able to answer, which is my favorite goddess, because it's really whoever is presenting themselves in a given moment. I have an interesting relationship with these nine goddesses in particular who are featured in my book, because they are the indwelling powers that lie within our nine chakras, according to the ancient Vedic spiritual wisdom of yoga and Ayurveda and Vedanta, because Vedanta is the, that system or philosophy that underlies yoga and Ayurveda. And I feel that they all serve such incredible purposes. So it just depends what we're needing at a given time. I will say, however, when I wrote this book in New York City during the heart of the pandemic, I truly felt that I was in the womb of goddess Kalaratri, who's the seventh goddess living in our crown chakra. And she is dark blue, like the night sky, carries a scimitar and is really having to fight an intense battle with demons to the point where they keep on multiplying through their blood drops. She has to literally drink the blood of the demon in order to ultimately destroy it. And it's such a gory, scary scene of this goddess who, unlike all the other goddesses, is wild. And her hair is disheveled. And she is really ferocious and really quite scary to look at. She's hard to look at. And it's so symbolic of how the truth with a capital T is what ultimately sets us free, but it's really hard to look at at first. And it requires a battle, which is so intense that it will feel that we have to drink a demon's blood at times. And it's actually the symbolism of all these illusions that we've been fed from the time we were born until now that we have to one by one pierce through and and drink those blood drops of illusions and realize they are just illusions they're not the truth they are all of the societal scripts the conditioning that we've been subscribed to without even having hit the subscribe button we have to go click unsubscribe unsubscribe <laughs> unsubscribe and it's intense it's it's really wow you know but when we go through that battle, the kind of power and the kind of clarity and the kind of strength that we get imbued with is really unparalleled. And in this particular step, step seven of the Navratri journey, we're talking about cultivating the power of truth 
and practicing transcendence of the pairs of opposites. In the Vedanta philosophy, the world itself is defined as pairs of opposites. You get joy, you get sorrow, you get profit, you get loss, you get pleasure, you get pain. But while you're in the world, you're going to experience all of this. And the only way to really find peace amidst the inevitable roller coaster of life is to practice going beyond the pairs of opposites. And we do that through the knowledge, ultimately, that sets us free. So part of this idea is that we actually can feel these goddesses in the actual energetic centers of our body, right? Mm -hmm. You and, and this is the case for any deities. I've done kind of deity work with deities from my own lineage, the Celtic deities. And I will notice like certain deities show up like in my torso, in my Dantian, in my kind of second and third chakra, like I can feel mm -hmm. <laughs> certain deities there. And, and this is kind of your practice, right? In the second chakra, the Brahmacharini chakra, right? You uh -huh. talk about, I can feel the goddess in my second chakra or in my throat. And I'm just wondering if you could say a word about that, like the experience of the embodiment, right? Like feeling not from the outside in, but from the inside out, um, really living from a certain energy. From a certain from a certain deity. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up. Even just this idea that there is a goddess, Brahmacharini, who lives in the second chakra, I feel it's a game changer. Just to even have that thought that, oh, if there's a goddess now who lives in my second chakra, who I now am aware of, then I'm gonna be a lot more careful what I feed myself. I'm going to be a lot more careful about what kind of sounds I listen to, what kinds of experiences I expose my five senses to, and especially going to be a lot more discerning about relationships and about sexuality because we lose a lot of our creative shakti. The second chakra tends to be where we lose ourselves, and it's especially really powerful to practice brahmacharya with any kind of temptation of the senses we may be having. And I reflected in this particular step about a relationship I had with a boyfriend who was apparently also written into my astrological chart to be there as a, <laughs> a lesson, right? Ultimately, every relationship has a lesson for us. And I got to experience what it was like to not practice brahmacharya for a short period of time. And then to really like, a step back and be like, oh, wow, this experience of being with this person in this way is leading me to feel sorrow. It's leading me to feel agitation. It's leading me to have some kind of experience of darkness that actually I don't really enjoy, you know, even though I may have physically enjoyed some of the experiences I had at the physical level, it beyond a point was not enjoyable. And that was my experience of really internalizing brahmacharya by really doing the discernment between what are the experiences that are leading towards my true self that are leading towards peace that is uninterrupted and what are those experiences that are causing me to feel distress right and agitation and a big interruption to the bliss that i was all otherwise already cultivating and so you know this step this chapter is framed by the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita. Actually, every chapter 
is framed by one or two verses from the Bhagavad Gita, which is such an incredible wisdom text. And I feel that when Lord Krishna is saying that what is like nectar in the beginning becomes like poison in the end, and what is like poison in the beginning becomes like nectar in the end, could not be a better way to describe this particular step and what we get to experience here. Because instead of allowing my senses to be drawn into this other person for a long time, because I had that foundation of practicing brahmacharya, I was able to pull myself back from that experience and remember that a goddess lives here in my second chakra. And I need to have a person in my life who is going to respect that and who is going to really honor that by honoring that within themselves, right? Like honoring that divinity within and thereby being able to respect healthy boundaries and to have a healthier relationship in general. So I got to really experience what it was like to let go of that. And I don't know any other woman who has said this to someone that I've rather than pursue our relationship, I would like to go into brahmacharya (laughs) and really know myself. But I did say it and I, I have templates for it. And it was the best choice I could have ever made because I really consciously chose it that instead of going down this path, which feels maybe like nectar in the beginning, I'm already feeling the poison just having taken a few bites, you know, I'm going to actually just go for the poison and trust that it will become like nectar in the end. Yeah. Well, there's something unexpected in the way that you framed this for me as I was reading. I'm thinking like, okay, we're on the second chakra. We're going to be about like creativity and expression and maybe like sexual healing. This is like, I think what most people think of when they get to the second chakra, at least I have often thought Uh of that. And, you know, for those that don't understand brahmacharya, you know, maybe you're, you're better positioned to describe it than me, but it's like, it's essentially this concept of mindful renunciation or mindful of focusing. Oftentimes people will go into periods of celibacy if they're in a phase of brahmacharya where they're not having any sort of sexual contact with others. But as you, as you frame so beautifully, it's so much more than just not having sex, right? Um, <laughs> but I was surprised, right? There's a way in which both for the second chakra, you, the way you describe like the practice is actually about pulling your energy in and getting really clean and really focused and really discerning, right? And in the same way, I think about the fifth chakra, it's all about the voice, right? It lives in the throat. And it's so often we think about that as like working out our, you know, our voice and getting our voice worked out. But no, you start with silence. Silence <laughs> is the practice in the fifth chakra. And it's, I was a little disoriented at first. And, and then I, I see the beauty of it where there's a pulling back into ourselves that needs to happen before we, we kind of give our voice to the world or we enter into some sort of creative endeavor, whether it's sexually or otherwise with the world. And for me, I really, I really resonate with this, this path of kind of an energetic way of being where it starts first being really centered and grounded in ourselves before we give voice, before we, you know, step into the world. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for noticing that and for sharing that. I think it is, yeah, it may, it may be very surprising and very different, but I feel that it's just going back to that same idea of mm. the true pleasure comes from letting go, right? So what they say in the monastic tradition is that renunciation is what gives pleasure. Renunciation is what gives enjoyment. 
But people have misunderstood what is renunciation, right? It doesn't mean you have to do even what I did, because even what I did was a lot. I, I, what I've done has been a long journey. And you don't have to, you know, go so deep and go really like, so all into it. I think people just in their working lives and their everyday lives can definitely still practice all of these things. And what renunciation really means is not even letting go of the quantity of our enjoyment or how long we enjoy something or how much, but it's actually about what value do we ascribe to that enjoyment? Can we see the transient nature of it? And can we remember who we really are, even as we are experiencing enjoyment in life? Can we actually know that this too shall pass away? There's actually a really amazing poem about this where there was a a king, I believe it was a king, who had inscribed into his ring that this too shall pass away. And it talks about how he went through all the experiences of life and like, for example, had his uh, statue made uh, somewhere in some big city where a lot of people would see him and recognize him and know him. And he is asking, what is fame but a slow decay? Even this shall pass away. And then the poem talks about how he had this most beautiful wife. And as he went on his marriage night to hold her, he was just telling himself, not telling her, but telling himself that as he was having this sensual experience, that even this shall pass away. And as he was enjoying some games and amusements with his friends and having a great time, he was also reminding himself that this too shall pass away. And even when he got old and was dealing with old age and, you know, disease and all of that, that even this too shall pass away. And so it's just a really profound reminder because we can think, oh yeah, when someone passes away, like, yeah, everything will come and go and we become, we think we're all detached, but it's really just a temporary side effect of the experience of death and loss. But what the sages have taught is that we want to cultivate that understanding of the transience of enjoyment and pleasure, even as we're experiencing it, so that we don't lose ourselves in it, but we also get to fully experience it without being distracted about desires for more or, you know, being caught up in the past or in the future, right? A lot of times people talk about not being able to enjoy experiences, like even with partners or with anything of the senses because they're not present. They're not here in the moment. And that being here in the moment is actually what gives us a childlike quality, but it requires a kind of letting go, right? Of the attachment to what happened in the past or the anxiety for what will be in the future or for losing maybe the thing that is giving enjoyment or giving a sense of security or happiness or safety in the present moment. There's these nine chakras, nine goddesses, but that's not the end of the story. There's a 10th day. And yes. in all great traditions, there is, you know, the, the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the day of rest, the day of integration. And uh, this fits into your model as well. Yes. 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 It's such an important day. I'm so glad that you brought it up. The 10th day is like a Sabbath. It's like a 
day of integration and a day of reflection and a day of celebration of the victory of the light of the truth over darkness in our lives. And the 10th day is actually the most important day of the whole Navratri spiritual journey because that is the day when the warrior mother goddess Durga actually defeats who is called Mahishasura, the greatest demon. And she's gone through these nine avatars, these nine battles, these nine journeys, ultimately to get to that 10th day victory and systematically to build up her power and Shakti to be able to destroy that greatest demon on the 10th day. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, just so many world wisdom traditions have this day of rest, right? It's just, it's baked into all of these cycles. A man that was super important to me, informative to me, he was a Zen master, Junpo Dennis Kelly Roshi. Mm-hmm. He taught me like really the depths of deep meditation, right? And I remember the first retreat I did with him and he, we were invited to like make a commitment around our practices. And I said something like, I'm going to meditate every day for the next year. And he was like, no, no, you're not. <laughs> he said, "You're try this on. Six days a week, I meditate without fail for a, for a year. But on the seventh day, you rest. You take a break. You enjoy the benefits of your practice. You, your meditation is not so formal and, and structured where you're on a cushion. You're taking a hike. You're walking through the woods. You're, you know, whatever. You're, you're with friends and loved ones. And that's actually your practice that day is to not practice so, so rigidly. And um, that has been just such wise advice for me around my own, around my own practices to just always build in a break. And I, and I do this with my own clients and students that like, you know, they're, we don't want to kind of overcook ourselves in these, in, in just like constantly having the foot on the gas. We have to have this, these day, a day to reset and just, you know, do the dishes, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. That's amazing that you were told that. I'm so glad because, yeah, it cultivates a sense of balance, appreciation, reflection, the pause. It's so important, right? Even the silence in chakra five is like the pause, the sacred pause of reflection. And, you know, even talking about expression and why I started with silence, because I feel that we gain a lot of information by listening deeply that then can inform our speech but even silence as a spiritual superpower i feel is a big one because silence for me now is like that womb through which i can recreate myself and i can feel the emotions that are there to be felt and actually that story is really interesting too of how the goddess after creating the whole cosmos comes back as a biological mother in the fifth step of the Navratri journey. And she gives birth to the warrior god Skanda, who is her baby. And she is always depicted as holding her baby while riding the lion. And I feel it's also really symbolic of how through giving ourselves some period of silence, we're actually going into that womb and of of recreation and we're able to then feel reborn and nurtured like we ourselves are that warrior baby skanda and we emerge with a lot more courage and a lot more power 
to then express whatever it is we've contemplated in that womb or space of sacred silence. Just to go a little different direction here, do you like, so this is just such an elegant way of being in relationship to the feminine and the goddess. I'm wondering if there are equivalent, an equivalent structure or practices around the masculine and, and gods. Uh, does something exist in that way? Or can you tell me a little bit, for those of us that are identified a little more in the masculine side of things, like um, where might you point us? Wow, that's a great question. I wish there were. I would like to know it too, because I feel that all these deities are actually inherently quite gender balanced. And it's interesting because for me, I, I feel that I connect more with the goddess when I am connected more with my divine masculine self, which is more of the courageous, assertive, um, brave part of myself, you know, which is really like the expression. Honestly, I feel that if we were to want to cultivate the masculine side, goddess one, three, five, seven, and nine are actually really great for that because they are more of the masculine energies. And then goddess two, four, six, eight are more of the like receptive feminine types of energies. But inherently... It feels very balanced, right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Yeah. There's both a kind of, um, kind of a ferocity and kind of a, a going out in some of these, like the kind of more penetrating quality of, of yeah. action and then the, certainly the more kind of receptive qualities in some of them. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there are obviously across the globe in all of the world wisdom traditions, there are innumerable examples and models of masculine deities that we can draw from i was i was particularly curious about this in this like vedic in your vedic lineage if there was if there was any sort of analogous mapping on the masculine side but um it sounds like it exists even within the goddess which i think is really beautiful and uh we know (laughs) the world needs more goddess leadership right now so i think we can find the masculine within these goddess deities um I think that's super helpful. And that's what's so unique, right? Because the Mm -hmm. feminine is the birth giver, even biologically, right? So it's like he is contained within she. So, you know, she kind of carries the whole universe. Like there's the stories about how the goddess Siddhidatri in step nine or Chakra nine is who has imbued the gods with the ability to give their seed and to you know, basically carry the seed of creation and to be able to do all of these different things. So it's an interesting illustration even of how the goddess is really worshipped and revered by yogis, sages, saints, and savants of all the different uh, masculine types as well. So that's like really, really interesting. And I feel that there's definitely a lot of masculine deities, for sure, in the Vedic spiritual tradition. Even in this book, Lord Shiva is coming up a lot as the kind of consort to Goddess Durga and the sort of masculine counterpart of Goddess Durga. It's interesting because a lot of times they show pictures which actually are so intertwined of Shiva and Shakti that it's like half and half, right? So it's like, Shiva is half Shakti and Shakti is half of Shiva. So I would say like with this particular book, it feels like 
Lord Shiva is an interesting one, but but in general, what we also understand of divine masculine and divine feminine in the Vedic tradition is that the masculine energy is called Purusha, which is the pure consciousness, which is kind of unchanging, unmoving stillness that we connect with in the depths of our introspection and in meditative states. Then we have Prakriti, which is the divine feminine expression and power and Shakti, which is taking that seed of consciousness and multiplying and expressing and having this wild, abundant creativity. So Shiva is actually inert matter and or inert consciousness and Prakriti is the matter which brings that inner consciousness to life and to movement and to expression. So even in that, it's so opposite of what we know as like masculine being the outward kind of like penetrating quality and the feminine being sort of the receptive, nurturing kind of aspect. So even that kind of like understanding of feminine and masculine is sort of like turned the other way around. So it just depends what what vantage point you're looking at it from. Of course, yeah, it's kind of the form and emptiness, right? It's it's more of the yeah. masculine being the state of deep deep emptiness and that kind of imperturbable silence and and deep stillness and and then the feminine being the form, all form of creation, the manifest world, all the different um forms of of that the earth can take or that, you know, creation takes yes yeah exactly exactly and i feel that the reason why we have this kind of journey of transformation is because that prakriti is transformation prakriti creation the feminine is constantly transforming even in the life cycle of a female embodied person especially if they give birth to uh, another being or more than one being the body goes through tremendous changes over the course of life. Whereas with the male body, it's not so much that way. Like a male body technically could be more or less unchanged from the time of coming into puberty until, you know, the end of life. Obviously there are some minor changes, but it's not like the whole body is kind of like, morphing to hold another human and then like coming back into something else and you know like and having these cycles go on and then not having the cycles go on and even like the journey of pregnancy so these nine steps are symbolic of the nine months actually of pregnancy that the female body is undergoing. So of course there's not going to be a male equivalent of that because right, yeah, of course. it wouldn't make sense to have one, you know? <laughs> That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, one of the best analogies I heard of for this is, you know, this may be, maybe only a, a few people will get this, but it's like AC DC, right? Like it's in electricity, there's like alternate currents. Like that's the experience of in a female body of like every moon cycle and pregnancy and like the hormones are just going up and down and up and down and uh for the male experience it's dc direct current it's just steady right so it's it's yeah it's it's um that's kind of again like consciousness and light right emptiness and form shiva shakti yeah 
Yeah, yeah, totally. But but it is interesting because Lord Krishna is also coming up a lot, even in this book, because it's the wisdom of the Bhagavad Gita, which is of Lord Krishna. And I write about how I've also connected with that within myself, because in step two, I feel like I approached relationships more like the goddess Radha, who is very devoted to someone, you know, at that deep level without even having a physical connection anymore. And that's how I had felt about the the boyfriend I had in chapter two. And I just kept him in my heart for such a long time, you know, without having any contact because it didn't feel right to have contact with him during that time. And then uh, realizing that, wow, you know, that was a long time to be devoted to someone who wasn't even physically in my life. And I need to do things differently now. So if I was like Radha and he was like Krishna, then I need to find Krishna within myself, you know, and that was part of the healing actually in step eight to then realize that women can also kind of embody what we see in a lot of male identifying people, which is this idea of not committing right away, you know, but really checking out the field and having fun in the process and not feeling rushed, you know, to like select someone and to be committed before it feels like we've done the proper discernment about whether this is the right uh, fit for us, you know, and, and not just committing to one. So I feel like Lord Krishna then became an interesting teacher of the power of rejuvenation because Krishna himself is youthful, is playful, is obviously profoundly wise and also a warrior, but dancing on the crocodiles as he's engaging in his battles. And like, what a amazing, interesting deity, right? Like, what an interesting idea that when we have mastered the power of transcendence, we can just be like Krishna, like a cute flute playing, fun loving, wise, powerful warrior teacher uh, being, right? And like, I really have connected with that energy of the divine masculine to even understand Durga as Mahagori and what rejuvenation actually means and what having a new beginning actually means. Because, you know, in a sense, it was my own finding my own divine completion that if I've always been like, the devoted goddess Radha, who is in love with Krishna, but never becomes his wife. And, you know, he's meanwhile got all kinds of wives. Then why can't I find that Krishna consciousness within myself too, you know, and, and actually have this new experience of dating and meeting new people and just being open without feeling like, oh, I need to you know, like have have this be sorted out or be rushed by a, a biological clock or something like that. And that's where, you know, all the Ayurvedic practices, I think, are also really powerful and empowering for for women, especially, right? Because we are the ones who physically reproduce. And so to have this opportunity to really be able to prolong your health, you know, like prolong your longevity and by having a foundation of amazing health and how like Krishna really feels like a, a great representative of that because of that eternal kind of youthfulness that he has and just taking that spirit into 
even like partner selection, for example, it just makes it a lot less torture and hard on the soul and hard on the heart and emotions to like, oh, let me just play and have fun with a lot of people with the foundation of brahmacharya so I don't get hurt in the process and I don't have to suffer in the process. So when I have that self-control, then it's like, oh, let me just screen people. Let me evaluate people. Let me just like have fun without caring so much about the outcome and without being so invested in what happens and when it happens, because it's all anyways, a play of our own karma, right? So Mm. this area of great distress and (laughs) pressure and, Mm -hmm. you know, so many things I feel can be imbued with that lightness and that kind of spirit of play, which I find in the masculine divine in Lord Krishna. So I feel that they can all be kind of uh, drawn in. And actually, I'm very curious about that myself. And I, I hope if anyone is listening who knows how there could be a divine masculine counterpart at each of the nine steps, it would be fun to just talk and see how that could work, right? Because obviously, Lord Shiva is there, and then Krishna comes into the eighth one, and Skanda is a male deity, right? So the baby Skanda is a divine masculine counterpart already. So already we got three, you know, and maybe there's like, six more like maybe Hanuman the monkey god could be a good one at some level I just don't know them as much as I do these nine so that just makes it a fun new exploration right to see like what that energy what those energies may be (laughs) all right I sense another book coming Um, (laughs) all right so yeah I mean it just it, it brings to mind for me this idea that actually we've talked about on the show before this idea of like an inner marriage where if we really can pull into ourselves like uh, in a deep way, not project for me, not project all of my uh, unmet needs around my feminine onto a potential partner or the people around me. And I can actually take the time and pull that back into myself. It usually requires some sort level of kind of, um, yeah, brahmacharya or, or a cleanse or a reset, but I pull the, all of those desires back into myself. And I've had some very deep experiences around this. I, I, I quite literally had like this deity that was like a Beltane deity come to me in a deep meditation that was just like this kind of maiden um, figure and um, kind of like just frankly just like sat on my lap. And it was so clearly it was not any woman I'd ever met. It was, it was, a, it was an aspect of the divine that came and, and, and sat with me. And, and the practice for me was actually to like now turn around and become her. And in a place of deep meditation, what's it like if I become her and what's the wisdom she has as she's looking back into my own eyes? Wow. And what can she see about my life and what do I need? And then from there, not just the maiden, but I found myself in this like crone energy, this like 80-year-old me as an 80-year-old woman, not a 44-year-old man, but an 80-year-old woman looking back upon me. And what's the wisdom she has for me? And in that process, marry those. And, and like quite literally in, in one of these kind of like, uh, we talk about this a little bit in my episode with Kamala Devi McClure. So for people that are interested in this, go back and listen to that. We talk about this a bit. And in that, in that ritual, I actually did like a hand fasting of like marrying myself, my inner masculine and feminine for a year and a day where the commitment was purely to, to, meet my own needs in a certain way mm-hmm. and to nur- commit to nourishing myself from the view of my both internal feminine and masculine, right? My goddess, my God, 
And when we can do that, we're so much more resourced and available and grounded in our own being. And then we can, as you say, like dating becomes so much more interesting, right? And there's just like a clear headedness about it. There's like a, there's like a, a the screening is not coming from this place of like unmet needs. Yeah. It's coming from a place yeah. of real generativity and, and honest kind of like attraction to someone's essence rather than like trying to fill a hole. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so beautiful. Yeah. That divine completion, the inner marriage, the feeling of connecting with our own wholeness. I mean, that's what then sets up the potential for a much more meaningful relationship, I feel too. So that's, that's so amazing. I've never heard anyone talk about that before, have those kinds of experiences. So I find it really, really fascinating. And I do have quite a few male students, like in in male identifying bodies. And they, I think, do also connect with this idea that you're talking about of really meeting their own needs in that nurturing kind of sense of the feminine and even like learning to cook and uh, learning to kind of give themselves what they would look for from a feminine uh, energy. And it's very empowering. You know, I feel like this is a really, really fascinating territory. And this itself is something I'm also exploring for another like program or book or something about how you can actually become what you're looking for, you know, and then what you're looking for can just be a beautiful mirror or reflection onto who you are, right? So that way, it's because I always also feel that whoever comes into our life, who we're drawn to, is there and we're drawn to them for a reason, because they're showing us parts of ourselves that are reflecting them and reflecting whatever it is we're attracted to, you know, or, or repulsed by, but strongly, right? Whenever we have strong uh, likes or dislikes connected to, it feels like that's where we need to work. And so what would it take to actually just turn the lens inward and say, oh, thank you for showing that about me. Let me go fix that or heal that rather within myself, right? And then uh, see who is reflected once my essence is fully recharged right and then just see like a beautiful mirror because ultimately i feel all relationships of all kinds are really there for us to grow spiritually and to be able to learn and to evolve and what if we had a guide post to working with our feelings and our attractions and our repulsions and our judgments to just continue our own spiritual growth in any kind of mm. container of relationship. If people want to discover more about your work, if they want to find your book, how do people find you in the world? Yeah, sure. So you can visit my organization's website, theancientway.co.co. We couldn't get the .com, so we got stuck with the .co. Um, and then if you go slash way of the goddess, you'll get all the links for all the different retailer sites where you can order the book. It's not an exhaustive list, but it does have a lot of different options for where you can find it. And then you'll find on the ancientway.co a lot of opportunities for being able to be in community with like-minded seekers who are looking to connect with the divine within themselves and also to be able to learn about Ayurveda and how to improve your health as a way to just give yourself a new beginning to yourself and your life in many different ways. 
And then you can also just find me on Instagram at Ananta dot one. So O N E is all spelled out. And I am hmm. usually posting pretty regularly. On yeah. There. She's, she's a great follow. Give her a follow. She's really <laughs> uh, posts some gems and a lot of really both meaningful and, and um, inspiring content. So thank you so much for joining us in our crazy wisdom community today. Uh, we, we really appreciate you, your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always wonderful to connect with like-minded people. And hopefully we can also include you and your community in the community that we are growing and developing called the Circle of Life program, which will be starting in 2023. Sounds great. And we'll throw all of Ananta's links into the show notes for people that want to find it. Thank you, Ananta. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Crazy Wisdom. If you like what you heard, please do rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen. This helps new people find the show. Maybe more importantly, it helps us grow our Crazy Wisdom community. My hope for you is between now and the next time you listen, that you try one new thing, one thing that would help you live a life of deeper purpose, deeper meaning, a life of greater love. And maybe that one thing is a little different, a little odd, a little intense, perhaps even a little crazy.